All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, introducing Ryan McMakin again from the Mises Institute. He is the editor there of their great website. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing, Ryan? Hello, it's great to be with you. I'm okay. Well, good. Uh, happy to talk with you again. Listen, so... um. I don't have any money, so I uh, necessarily don't know very much about all this um, market stuff. But I do know about basic uh, Misesian business cycle theory, the boom and the bust. I've lived it my whole life. I didn't even need to read Jekyll Island, man, to know. Um, and uh, so I'm always very interested in what's happening with the economy, where in the cycle are we, and how do we judge all of the various severe government interventions uh, this way and that coming and going in the economy, and especially nowadays in the aftermath of the lock-ins and the massive monetary inflation of the last couple of years and the new uh, high interest rates and all these things going on. And you have this great article at Mises called Money Supply Growth Falls to Depression-Era Levels for Second Month in April. Okay, well, maybe your headline writer is uh, just trying to grab my attention. But no, the article actually says that too. But how meaningful is that? <laughs> yeah, I actually wrote, wrote that headline. I get to write my own headlines, which is exciting. Um, <laughs> I know you did. I was just teasing. <laughs> and I get, I, uh, I am careful not to put stuff in there that has nothing to do with the article, right? They, because <laughs> um, our our website has some standards, uh, of and course. so no, I just wanted care. to uh, emphasize that, yeah, this is unusual. The way that the money supply has fallen this much, and. Uh, it doesn't actually have to fall. I mean, the fact that growth turned negative, I mean, let's be crystal clear, we're talking about a negative number here, right? We're talking about the amount of money um, in the economy is less now than it was a year ago, uh, which almost never, ever happens. So you'll see plenty of cases where growth in the money supply goes almost flat. Uh, you know, it gets it's uh, up 0.3% or 0.5% mm -hmm. or something like that year over year, but almost never goes to zero and certainly doesn't go below zero in terms of actually getting smaller. Mm -hmm. And so that has actually happened. Now, that hadn't happened at all in the last 30 years or so. The last time it had happened was in the early 90s. Uh, but to get to the sorts of numbers we're now looking at where it was down 12%, year over year uh in uh april i mean that's just huge and you have to go back to the great depression to see those levels mm -hmm. of declines in the money supply of course then a lot of listeners are like so what uh what, what does that even mean um it's important because the boom bust cycle is in many ways governed by how fast the money supply is growing 
or shrinking. And so you ended up with this big boom period uh, over really, it has existed almost continually since about 2012 or so. I mean, there was a, there was kind of a slow period of coming out of the Great Recession, but things didn't really take off till about 2012. And then continued up until 2020, where there was a big crash because of the lockdowns and all of that. Mm-hmm. But that was immediately returned to boom status by printing essentially $2.2 trillion. So we then entered this mega inflationary was that period. All? <laughs> yeah, that, well, at first, it uh, since then, since 2020, there's been a lot more money creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I that like was the, the one be, single huge burst. That could be really sarcastic in both ways, too. Is that all? Like, oh, that doesn't sound like very much. Of, that's a lot of money. <laughs> but then also, is that all? Because I know that ain't all. They went way beyond that, too, right? Uh, absolutely. Well, that doesn't even count uh, what had been going on since 2009 when uh they had right when the federal reserve had bought up had basically printed money to purchase about eight trillion dollars uh worth of mortgage-backed securities and Mm -hmm. government debt so i mean this is a long thing that's been going on for about 15 years it's just you reach this huge explosion of all of a sudden we're just going to print up a couple trillion and keep in mind the entire federal budget in 2019 it was about 4.3 trillion yeah so suddenly they're printing up half what you would consider to be a normal federal budget that these this is just huge well look, and but but since then the federal budget's ballooned to over six trillion so like everything's different now okay but then well look i mean uh, as an economist i'm a great anti-war guy so the best i can do is try to you know, copy and paste our current experience onto our recent past and try to figure out where in the cycle are we. And it sounds like, well, okay, I mean, as you said, they crashed the economy. They essentially created a recession with the lockdowns, a very little one, a very literal one on economic activity, but at the same time just immediately filled that hole with cash and all this new money, uh, which has led to all this price inflation. Then they raise the interest rates because they get afraid. They're like, well, we're kind of overdoing it here, right? And so they want to stop all the new loans going out and all the new monetary expansion. So they raise the interest rates because they're trying to create a crash. And then, But it seems like we've had some sort of corrections. We haven't really had a crash. So does that mean we're right around like Bear Stearns and Lehman time in 2007? but that the real September 2008 is still ahead? And if so, is that good news? Because, man, we need this correction because it was the bubble that was wrong. Well, you have to do a couple of things once you've had a decade of highly inflationary policy. Um, And that's where the money supply growth or contraction comes into play, is that you had this long, long period of... Big expansion in the money supply. So you had big year-over-year growth over and over and over again, month to month. And that caused a bunch of asset price inflation, made stocks go up, made home prices go up. That made Wall Street very happy. Eventually, though, that when you create money, it's very unpredictable. Where's it going to go? What's it going to do? But by 2022, it started to filter into food prices and just everyday stuff that that just the cost of living for normal people who weren't even looking at buying a house or buying any stocks. We're now looking at big price increases, 40-year highs 
in inflation. And so that's then why you started to see the money supply shrink because the Fed got so concerned about inflation uh, that they started to let the money supply slow down significantly, and then it started to shrink. And so it's important the way you phrase it, because a lot of people, they they think that the Fed is trying to cause a recession. They're not trying to cause a recession so much as they're just trying to avoid massive inflation. Which always causes um, a recession, though, right? Uh, usually, um, it could just cause something like happened in Japan, where you just have a long period of... Kind of letting the air out of the economy. It's a slow deflationary period where the standard the 1970s, of living is right? Kind of stagflation era thing. Yeah. I, well, they had low inflation in Japan, so that wasn't stagflation. Oh, you had here in the 70s a stagflation period. You could have stagflation where the economy, where unemployment goes up, but prices yeah. don't slow, which is the worst case scenario, I think. Uh -huh. And that could still happen because they don't really know what's going to happen with inflation. But the reason they're trying to get rid of inflation is because they're afraid. Um, because inflation usually comes with social unrest. Uh, that was, I mean, just look at Latin America. I mean, inflation yeah. was at the root of a lot of those 1970s and 1980s um, uh, periods of <laughs> what you would call dirty wars and revolutions and coups and all of that stuff. Inflation was central mm -hmm. to all of that. And so they don't they want to do something about inflation here. If they can get rid of inflation without causing a recession, they will uh, maybe have something like Japan, because then that that's that doesn't seem as bad from a policymaker standpoint. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's making everybody worse off. But then you don't get the headlines about how there's massive unemployment or there's inflation. Or that's there's, what they uh, call the soft landing. Best case scenario for half a crash, kind of. Yeah, the soft landing is you're worse off. And your children will be worse off and the economy will slowly get worse and worse and there won't be any capital accumulation. And you're not you're not setting a foundation for a stronger growth period in the future. You're just enduring a long period of things getting worse. Mm -hmm. I think that's what they actually want, because that doesn't make big headlines. They could make yeah. fool people into thinking everything's fine. If you actually had a real recession, that would actually cause a lot of these uh, totally wasteful zombie banks and zombie corporations that Wall Street loves, they would actually finally go out of business and then you could start to rebuild the economy on a better foundation. That would be the better solution. And prices would actually come down. Mm -hmm. um, but the Fed doesn't want that to happen. They want to keep prices high, especially in stocks and real estate. And so it's hard to predict what's going to happen. But the the fact that they just backed off some of this massive money printing is why the money creation process went into reverse. Mm -hmm. And when it's that much, you, you start to think, okay, a recession is very likely or at least some sort of long economic dislocation. And so, yeah, that's bad news in terms of the short term. Uh, and that's why we mention it. Like money supply crashed. So get ready for something weird and unusual and unpleasant to happen. Could be a Japan-style deflation or could be just an out-and-out crash. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's interesting the way this always plays out and I'm always trying to keep up, you know, I understand what you're saying that I guess, you know, if in my mind, 1999, 2000 and 2008 are more like classic boom bust things that this is more complicated because all the different countervailing pressures here and stuff and 
just the amount of money they created and then the lockdowns and then the aftermath of the lockdowns. And I'm going to ask you about that thing that you wrote about the latest jobs report here in a minute. But I wanted to point out this uh, quote, I guess, from a shareholder meeting or something with um, uh, from J.P. Morgan. And she's saying we need a recession because we need workers to be worried about their jobs so that they'll stop demanding raises. This, this is what everybody knows causes inflation is when people who work for a living, you know, salary, you know, I guess lower in salary workers and hourly wage earners, when they finally have had enough and demand a cost of living increase or they'll quit. That's when inflation really becomes a problem for big business. And that's when they demand that government do something about it and clamp down on the rest of us. And I just wanted to point out how horrible and cynical that is, you know, that, you know, the Marxists are still only half right about their analysis of the situation. But there is a class war there and it, it is them versus us in a lot of ways. Well, when you started, you said you don't have any money, so you don't know how the economy works. Well, this woman's a perfect example of how there's plenty of people with tons of money, and they don't really understand how the economy works uh, either. Uh, <laughs> because but I just like how if her, they were, of course, is... it could be they're just cynically saying that yeah. because that's what they think the stockholders want to hear, and they do know how the economy works. Yeah, but the reality, of course, is that if they we're actually interested in free markets or returning to some semblance of sanity in the economy. They would want the Fed to stop inflating, not just cause a recession. And causing a recession for the purpose of bringing down wages is silly. The purpose, uh, the reason the Fed should be allowing interest rates to rise. And again, the Fed isn't setting interest rates higher. The Fed's just easing off of its ramming down interest rates with uh, its policy in a uh-huh. in a somewhat unhampered economy, in a functioning economy, interest rates would be much higher than they are. But the Fed constantly intervenes to ram interest rates down to keep asset prices high to make Wall Street happy. Mm-hmm. Now, so Wall Street's saying, oh, well, uh, here's what they, here's what Wall Street really wants. They want you to somehow keep workers from getting uppity by reducing wages. But then they want the Fed to immediately go back to ramming down interest rates again so they can inflate the next bubble and keep asset prices high for Wall Street. So they want really two conflicting things at once. And they probably just figure the Fed can do both. Just just get wages down and then you can start inflating asset prices because they want high asset prices. They just don't want high wages. Right. So they're fine with inflation. They're fine with monetary inflation. And it's not high wages that causes inflation. It's monetary inflation. It's creating money. And that's what the central bank does. But of course, uh, Jamie Dimon and JP Morgan people, they're best buds with the Federal Reserve. Every time the Federal Reserve shuts down another bank, they hand over all its assets to JP Morgan. JP Morgan's happy. And I assume the Fed won't be uh, done until there's like two banks left in America. Right. JP. Morgan and Bank of America. I don't know. Yes, but it's, uh, of course, a very nice uh, inbred corrupt system that uh, they have together. But yeah, a because of what the Fed has done over the last 15 years, which is inflate the money supply so much, the only way out, unfortunately, the best case scenario is to have a real recession where you pop all of these financial bubbles and start with a more sound economy. And that's going to create temporary unemployment 
mm-hmm. in the meantime, because everybody's working for these zombie corporations that rely on super low interest rates and Fed meddling to keep them afloat. They won't be able to stay in business and pay people salaries, so they're just going to have to go away. But they weren't producing any value anyway. The only reason they even existed was because of Fed meddling in the economy. Mm. And which is why they're going to keep meddling in politics so they can stay in business at the expense of the market and reality and the rest of us. Um, And I do appreciate how their first resort is just to cruelty. And, you know, of course, the lower the wage that is being earned, the longer it takes for them to get the cost of living increase too, you know? So they're not only, they're not the cause of the price inflation, they're the last ones to finally get the adjustment for it. And then they got to take the blame for it all and take the hit. So it's, I always appreciated the cynicism there, you know, we need to make sure it's clear that when the fed inflates the uh, economy, the benefits of that new money go to uh, bankers, to people who sell government securities on Wall Street, the people who already have assets. And the last people to benefit from new money creation are just ordinary workers further down the totem pole. But by then, prices have already adjusted up mm-hmm. to take into account the reality of the the new larger amount of money. So they don't even have a period where they could buy cheaper things with their larger amount of money that they've received. They've already they're already facing higher prices. So, yeah, they never had a beneficial period from the inflation like uh, bond dealers did. Right. I feel bad for liberals and leftists in a way where, you know, that funny meme about the guy who reluctantly agrees with somebody he hates on the Internet or something like that, where they have to admit that here it's not just capitalists, but it's the free market capitalist guys in the world. The anarcho-capitalists, even, the Austrian school libertarians, they're the ones who can explain more and better than anyone else why it is that real wages don't go up even when wages go up, why it is the economy booms and busts, why it is that every small business has to get you know, knocked on its rear end every 10 years or so and start over again. And all of the ways that the most powerful banks and corporations wage economic war on the people of the country, it's not coming from the left. It's not coming from any kind of socialist with any kind of argument for a new government program to ameliorate the effect or anything like that. It's the purest free market guys of all who understand the, this is the revolution right here. Your right to trade in a free market. This is as good as it gets. If we could perfect that, we'd be all, a lot better off, you know? Well, and the center left is the worst because they're just basically in agreement with people like John McCain or the Bush family on all this economic stuff. They've got all the exact same quote-unquote solutions, and it's it's exactly what got us to where we are now, a bankocracy essentially a heavily financialized economy um, where it's it's let's create money it will benefit our friends the most and then we'll give a, a few table scraps uh, to regular folks once the bankers are done with it and that's basically what the dominant uh, economic ideology is in Washington right now the idea that there's any sort of like free market ideology dominant among Uh, The U.S. Senate or anyone in the White House is uh, just simply laughable at this point. Yeah. Well, and this is where I have sympathy for a lot of liberals and leftists that they're brought up being told this is what capitalism is. So they're looking for the opposite of that when the real opposite, it would be a real free market. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, and that would be such a radical change at this point um, that <laughs> you'd have to be going way, way back. I mean, the last time you had a president stand up there and actually embrace true market freedom and denounce uh, the Wall Street bankers and all that was probably Grover Cleveland. So um, once uh, the Cleveland type of Democrats died out in the 1890s, that was it. It was all the the McKinley uh, big government crony. It's sort of quote unquote capitalism after that. And so uh, that's been dominant for more than a century. And uh, it's that's those people are the architects of the system we have now. So it requires big, big changes, a complete dismantling of the federal banking system at this point. No problem, man. We'll just do Kennedy silver certificates. <laughs> well, of course, there are different ways you can finally unravel this, right? Where you start allowing currency competition. Uh, you start allowing uh, at least just some small startups, real competition in the banking industry to occur. Some people are trying to do this. Um in fact, like uh, we've got people associated with us, the woman who's uh, Caitlin Long is trying to start Custodia Bank in Wyoming, where it's a full reserve bank where they're not lending out your money that you put into the bank where you would put money in your bank and it would actually be safe and you would know it was there. Um, but the Fed won't won't approve their applications for all of the uh requirement required permits that they need to do this and to create a, a bank that would compete with the big guys like JP Morgan. So it's a very much a cartel where they control um competition and ensure the monopoly power of the big banks. And so all of those even the slow gradual methods that you could bring in place uh to offer an alternative are being kept out by the federal government at this time. So you do, in a certain sense, you're going to need a major economic disruption where people just realize just how uh, unworkable the system is becoming, that you need a bunch of new players in the system. You need true competition. You need actual entrepreneurs to offer a different product. Uh, but right now, most of that just simply isn't allowed. Hmm. Give me just a minute here. At the Libertarian Institute, we publish books, real good ones. So far, we've got Will Griggs, No Quarter. Sheldon Richmond's Coming to Palestine and What Social Animals Owe to Each Other, and four of mine, Fool's Aaron, Enough Already, The Great Ron Paul, and my brand new one, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And I'm happy to announce that we've just published our managing editor Keith Knight's first one, The Voluntarist Handbook, an excellent collection of essays by the world's greatest libertarian thinkers and writers, including me. Check them all out at libertarianinstitute.org slash books. And for a limited time, signed copies of Enough Already and Hotter Than the Sun are available at scotthorton.org slash books. Hey guys, I had some wasps in my house. So I shot them to death with my trusty Bug Assault 3.0 model with the improved salt reservoir and bar safety. I don't have a deal with them, but the show does earn a kickback every time you get a Bug Assault or anything else you buy from amazon.com. By way of the link in the right-hand margin on the front page at scotthorton.org. So keep that in mind. And don't worry about the mess. Your wife will clean it up. You know, Ryan, let me ask you, man. I I guess if I went back in time a couple of decades, I wouldn't be able to imagine that the national debt could be over $30 trillion. And I know some of that is intra-government agency debt. Maybe some argue it's only 22 or whatever it is. But still, that is so much. But... 
they talk about it. They at least call it nominally $30 trillion, and I guess that's what they're paying interest on anyway, so that's what counts. And... Um, or that's a major part of what counts anyway. And then I seen up there, uh, was it Yellen testifying that, yeah, I mean, of course, yes, the plan is that we're going to get up to $50 trillion by 2030, whatever it was, I forget. Um, and I was thinking, is there a magic number at some point? I'm not asking you what the number is because I'm not saying that you would claim it, but is there a point where the world just gives up on this and says it? I guess... I mean, Congress can, they have to keep printing money to pay off the debt so that they don't have to tax us enough just to pay the interest on the debt without us all overthrowing them. <laughs> so yeah. at some point, the luck runs out here, right? Yeah, the issue is, can you keep up with the debt service? It's like with anything where you've got a big debt and you have to keep making payments on it. And the question is, can you make the payments? So as long as the federal government can keep making the payments, it really doesn't matter how big the debt gets. However, there are political complications to that, right? The the feds just can't take every dollar they get from taxes and devote it to paying debt service on uh, on the debt because they've they've made all these promises to voters, right? Oh yeah, we collect. Uh, four trillion dollars a year in taxes, and don't worry, we'll we'll pay for your Social Security, your Medicare, your Medicaid, um, and all of you people who are paranoid about uh, foreign boogeymen. We need to uh, have huge military installations everywhere, and of course, we need to keep all the checks flowing to Raytheon. So all of that money has to be paid in addition to making good on your debt payments and. At some point, that starts to overwhelm the entire federal budget. And so when you look at it now, we're getting to the point, not just because the number is larger in terms of the federal debt, but the interest number is larger. So interest having to be paid over time is going to double or even triple as this new, all these new uh, debt instruments, new bonds that they've sold are are coming due at higher percentages. Uh, so in recent, in the last year, as as uh, interest rates have gone up, you're now having to pay more and more on your new debt. And so eventually you're going to have more and more of that new debt at 3%, 4%, 5%, whereas they've been paying 1% for a long, long time. So that's doubling or tripling. So now you're looking at paying, boy, 900 billion, even a trillion in debt service. So now you're paying more in debt service than you're even paying for the defense budget. In some cases, the Social Security is like 1.3 trillion or so. So that's just a huge drain uh, on the economy overall. It gets you nothing, and as, as you can't use it to shore up any of your political allies. No special interest groups get that except uh, investors and Wall Street people. And so the question is, all right, can we just keep paying more and more of this money forever? And that's when you start to get uh into discussions of default while they they're not going to just say oh we're not paying it back what they could say is well we'll pay it back 90 cents on the dollar because we just can't afford to pay the full amount anymore and that would make interest rates of course go up even more because the risk then of government bonds would go up significantly but i do think you'll start to see more and more suggestions of well uh, what can we do in terms of actually getting this debt bill down, maybe negotiate some 
uh, lower amounts. This is something that's not going to happen next year. We're talking maybe 10 years from now, certainly in the future. Um, but all those other costs, wars, uh, welfare, that's not going away. And so they're going to have to manage all of that. And the question is, can they just keep shoveling more and more money to debt service? And at some point, yeah, you can't anymore. Uh, and you have a sovereign debt crisis and you need to come up with some sort of solution. And that involves some sort of limited default usually. Yeah. It's just drives me crazy. I think about, you know, all the tens or even hundreds. I don't know how to calculate it all. Thousands of dollars I've been taxed by the national government over my lifetime. And to know that all that went into a rim for a tire for a plane that they don't even use anymore. They just got thrown away in some stupid warehouse sitting there somewhere. This kind of thing just drives me mad. But then worse is all of that. I mean, man... The tens of thousands that they've taken from me is a lot to me. And I'm speaking for every other regular schmuck in this country. It's just incalculable, you know, in our own minds, the opportunity costs we've lost from the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars they take from us all the time and more. And to know that it's all just going to pay this tiny remainder of pennies on the dollar for some sovereign U.S. government bondholder somewhere, that they all bought those bonds with money that they printed out of nothing in the first place, too, and all of this, just to keep their crooked racket going. They can't even pretend that they killed somebody with the money. They just blew it. You know, never mind helping somebody or something like that. They just blew it on paying the interest on the debt to God knows who, but probably someone evil who didn't deserve a dividend from me. Well, and of course, debt incurred now is just future taxes for somebody else. And so it's not free. It's it's <laughs> whatever they're blowing it on, someone's going to pay for it at some point, either in reduced growth, because having a huge debt load just sucks resources out of the economy, means less growth, less capital accumulation, less entrepreneurship. So you're paying for it that way, paying for just an outright taxation to make good on the debt service. I mean, it's not even just something for our people our age. It's 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 going to be people born 10, 20, 30 years from now are going to still be dealing with that and seeing their standard of living go down. And for what? Right. And that's why it's important to note. And I'm, you've probably run articles on this and I've written some to myself is that when you're calculating the cost of national defense, quote unquote, you have to include in. Of course, not just the Pentagon money, but you also got to include uh, VA expenses because that's just deferred salaries, essentially, for personnel who are recruited for the military. Uh, but you also have to include the share of the federal debt that went to military spending in the past because you're still paying for that now. You're still paying the debt service on that now. And so simply waging wars based on a borrowed dime that's just adding then to future costs that you have to pay on debt service. So you need to add to that just Pentagon bill of say 800, 900 trillion. You then got to add whatever portion of the national debt is uh, remaining from old wars. Mm -hmm. And so you ignore that 
Um, and you're basically letting them off the hook for just blowing that money on who knows what, on whatever their latest lost war is. Yeah. That's a big portion of the debt service. Well, you know, not to get all French Revolution on you and everything, but it's so apparent that the people with the power just don't care about us at all. And the way they talk about how they just have unlimited packages of hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars at a time to send over there to the war in Ukraine. While, as everyone can see, bridges are falling down and hospitals are run down and the basics of the functioning of the economy are falling apart all around us. The homeless crisis in virtually every city and town in the country and just that Joe Biden talking about, well, we have to pay all the civil servant salaries in Ukraine while people are going <laughs> hungry on the streets of America. I think people are really feeling that. They don't know where Ukraine is. They probably have an idea that it's east of Slovakia somewhere and probably none of their damn business, you know? Yeah, they have no idea where it is or what the history is uh, with uh, the Soviet Union or any of that. And it would just seem reasonable, even if you're opposed to uh, social democracy in general and huge social benefit schemes, especially at the federal level, where they're just completely divorced from reality and local needs anyway. Um, you, you could probably at least make the case, though, is that, well, if you're going to tax a bunch of Americans for a bunch of money, you could at least spend that money back in their communities where they might potentially benefit from it in some way. And the, but that's not happening at all when you're just uh, spending all that money to uh, hopefully provoke World War Three, hopefully from their point of view, World War Three with the Russians. That doesn't benefit anybody. Whereas at least if they had spent that money on like some local hospital or something like that, well, you could probably get a piece of that or maybe even be a patient in that hospital. But yeah. With, when it's all just spent on uh, corrupt Ukrainian uh, overlords uh, who hate freedom of the press and democracy, they keep outlawing all that stuff. It's now a one-party state um, with, of course, forced military service. Well, you're not benefiting from that in any way. If anything, you're, you face incineration if the U.S. manages to trigger uh, a nuclear war. So no benefit whatsoever uh, whereas at least if they were building a bridge, there might be some benefits. So defense spending is just, especially when it has nothing to do with defending the U.S., just there's no potential benefit there at all. Mm -hmm. Well, and back to that initial inflation we were talking about, I wonder what percentage of homeless people in the country now were made homeless starting in 2020, 2021, during especially the housing inflation. I mean, I know that I got gentrified right the hell out of Austin, and I'm about to get gentrified even further out. My landlord just raised my rent, and I can't do it. I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. And I got a lot better jobs than a lot of people. I have a lot of jobs. <laughs> but a lot of people, you know, are not set like me. I know that I know how it feels to be a light bill away from, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. Um, and uh, I know there are a lot of people going through that. You know, I read this thing. I admit it was at Vox.com. It was like these social scientists went out and they were saying, you know, it's true that a lot of people on the street do meth, but a lot of them do meth because they're on the street. They weren't drug addicts before, but now they got to stay awake. They fall asleep. They're going to get churned. 
And so they're in this trap, you know, as people who they got kicked out. Landlord said, sorry, you got to go. I'm bulldozing this house and selling the lot for a million dollars and the new housing. Boom, out you go. And then they had nowhere else to go. And well, so they didn't do anything wrong. They weren't smoking crack before this. They weren't messed up before this, but now they're messed up and they live under a bridge. And there's millions of them, or I don't know how many millions, hundreds and hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of them. Well, that whole phenomenon of um, organizations like BlackRock and other huge investment firms buying up single family houses to rent them out um, at inflated prices. That's that's a result of Federal Reserve Central Bank policy right there. It was a uh, fairly complex issue. We would call it uh, yield starvation. It's where uh, they're suppressing interest rates. So investment firms look further and further afield from their usual investments to get a decent return because interest rates on everything else is so low. And so they they're then branching out into buying like these are huge firms which never used to buy single family houses or they never used to buy storefronts like in some tiny small town um uh outdoor shopping mall uh strip mall uh but if you look at the Wall Street Journal this has been a recent trend in the last few years where now they're just trying to find any new place that they can put their money in and collect big rents on that, whereas that normally it would have been too small, too uh, decentralized, um, too difficult to manage because it's actually pretty. There's a lot of management costs that come from dealing with single-family houses and renting them out. This is very different from just like owning a hundred-unit apartment building or something, right? And each house is different and has different needs and they're on different contracts and all of this stuff. Normally, a big company would never bother with that. But because of the way that the Federal Reserve has suppressed interest rates uh, and really uh, changed the economy and created these real estate bubbles, they're now doing that. And they're buying out single family homes from underneath normal people who just want to live in the homes as first time home buyers and that sort of thing. So that's uh, fortunately that's coming to an end somewhat you're seeing that a lot of these large investment houses they're dumping their single family uh housing portfolio which is i think all good news um but it was made a particularly acute from 2020 to about early 2023 uh because of just the inability to get a high return when uh the fed is uh, jamming down all those interest rates to one percent or less so let's just hope that that would be a benefit of a real crash is that uh, housing prices would go down. It would uh, turn away a lot of these uh, investment houses from looking at single family houses anymore. It'd be good for first time home buyers. It would bring rents down as well. Um, and so there are potential benefits from a deflationary period. Uh, you just have to make sure that the Fed just doesn't return to its old ways and bailing out billionaires and as as they did in 2009, just to keep the investment class happy and everybody else just paying high prices. Yeah. All right, man. Well, uh, last issue here, and I'm sorry, I know I already kept you over time. Can I keep you one more question here? <laughs> yeah. Uh, tell me about this thing that you did about the jobs data and what all that means in this inflationary, recessionary time that we're living in. Well, the jobs data, if you if you just look at uh, something other than this headline that the administration likes to use, it's just not great. Um, you mentioned real wages a few minutes ago, and that's one thing where we've seen a negative uh, 
increase for the last 26 months, I think now at this point. So what that means is that they're always crowing about how wages went up. But if you actually look at the gap between wage growth year over year and, and inflation growth over that same period, wage growth is not keeping up with inflation growth. So that means your real wages, your inflation adjusted wages are actually going down. And this is an average, right? An average hourly wage. Federal government puts out data on this, but they never mention it when they put out their jobs data. Uh, but if you look at that, you've been actually getting poorer if you have average wages uh, for the last more than two years, 26 months. So that's one issue. Another issue is if uh, you look at what's called the household survey, the federal government always, uh, Biden's always crowing about the establishment survey, which is the survey of large employers, and they survey only the number of jobs. If you look at a different survey they use called the household survey, this is a survey of actual people and ask them, do you have a job? Do you want a job? And then what we find looking at that is that actually has been going down in recent months where there's fewer people saying that they have jobs and that a huge number of this, when you delve even further into the data, is that the self-employed uh, are going away. You're seeing a sizable crash in the number of self-employed people, just like you did in 2007 and 2008 before that uh, financial crisis. So there's lots of jobs data that uh, that's not exactly something we should be celebrating, but they just never really mention it and, and focus laser-like on the one bit of data that makes it look like the economy is fine. And that's the establishment survey. And that's what they're always quoting mm -hmm. on the jobs number. And and so uh, I highly recommend people look beyond that and get a more nuanced view of what the jobs data says. Mm -hmm. So with, the, with this jobs data and the, I saw some housing price data coming in. And as we started talking about the uh, money supply at the beginning, uh, does it look to you like there's going to be a real crash? Or they're just going to mud along more long, more or less like this. Well, the the if we're going off past reliable indicators, it would look like that you're looking at a real full blown recession uh, because you've got things like the manufacturing survey is tanking. Actually, two different manufacturing surveys that the Fed puts out are tanking to recession era levels. The um, the economic indicators of um, the the forward indicators that show where's the economy headed in, say, the next six months, they're all looking at levels that we would expect during a, a period that comes right before a recession. Then there's the yield curve, which has plummeted down to levels that we haven't seen since 1981. And when the yield curve goes negative, which it is right now, that has basically a 100% accurate record of predicting a recession. And it's it's the deepest into recession territory we've seen it in 40 years. So that certainly suggests all that. It's, it's always possible that there's something weird going on and none of these things point to an actual recession and that maybe you'll just have uh, this low, slow letting out of air, um, which I think is actually even worse because it lets the government get away with what they've been doing and impoverishing us for even longer. Mm -hmm. So it's it's hard to predict though. But again, I'm just hoping we avoid the worst case scenario, which is recession plus continued high price inflation, which would be like a 1970s sort of situation. So right. let's just hope that doesn't happen. Yeah. I mean, I think it's chapter 11 of uh, For a New Liberty where Rothbard says, you know, they always try to prick the bubble with their little needle and let the air out slowly, but it always pops. 
you know. Yeah, they always the say other. that. They always say there's going to be a soft landing. They always say, I mean, the Fed was saying in like March of 2008, oh, we see no recession on the horizon. Uh, we see no problems, even though officially later it turned out the recession had started in December of 07 when they were saying we see no recession on the horizon. So, I mean, the, the people of the Fed, the Fed comes, they have no idea what's going on. There is no correlation between what they predict will happen and what actually does happen in terms of the economy. So certainly don't go off anything those people say. Yeah. Sound advice from the man at Mises. Thank you very much. Really appreciate your time, Ryan, as always. Thank you, Scott. All right, you guys, that's Ryan McMakin. He's the editor over there at the Mises Wire. That's Mises.org. The Scott Horton Show and Anti-War Radio can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., APSRadio.com, Antiwar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.